Pastor Brian Wolf here, there, and I am with Dr. Gregory Schulz, and we are talking about the master metaphors. You might be listening to this broadcast on Table Scraps or uh, listening to it from uh, from our websites. Uh, if you visit www.whatdoesthismean.org uh, and click on the columns, you'll see a master metaphors tab there where you can reference a number of the resources that we'll be referring to in this conversation, which will be on Aristotle's cross-examination of nature, what's sometimes commonly called Aristotle's four causes. And talking about this is really, in fact, Dr. Schulz, I think what what began our conversation about these metaphors. Uh, why why do you call this uh, the Aristotle's cross-examination of nature? Oh, oh, wait, before I ask that, I want to know, I've been trying to figure this out all week, what is Aristotle's first name? Fred Aristotle? <laughs> Joe well, hi, Aristotle. <laughs> Thanks very much for that curveball. We'll we'll refer our scholarly listeners to Wikipedia to take a look and see if you can figure that out. Um, but what might be worth mentioning is that um, something like Plato, Aristotle's name by which we know him, uh, rather literally means um, it has the the notion of excellence or virtue in it, um, Ariste. So it it nice. kind of promises an excellent speaker or an excellent tutor for the thinking that we need to do. So I'll stick with that. Now, last week we were reading Plato, who was writing about Socrates. Now, uh, it was Socrates, it was to his student was Plato. Now, Plato's student was Aristotle. Uh, but these, we should understand that these three great philosophers were not in lockstep with one another. They were interacting with one another, and they had different ideas from one another. Well, that's right. I would, I would just suggest, especially for those of us who are just getting used to thinking in terms of Greek philosophy, um, first of all, that Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle could all be lumped together for a, a first run at things right about 400 to 300 BC. So in the first century of those silent centuries between Malachi and the opening of the promises for John the Baptist and then the virgin birth of Jesus, um, that's where Greek philosophy really takes off. It might also work, um, though I, I don't want to put these in exactly the uh, the same basket, I suppose. It might work to think, as we do, about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the patriarchs of the Israelites and patriarchs in the line of the Savior, to think about Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle as the patriarchs of Greek philosophy. And because Greek philosophy informs Western culture, um, as founders or patriarchs of Western culture, actually. That's now uh, you talk about Aristotle's cross-examination of nature from uh, from the Greek uh, word aitia, uh, which you're translating as cross-examination. Well, uh, and and you you also mentioned that this uh, something gets lost when we go from that Greek term to the uh, to the Latin term of cause. So so why cross-examination, and what's lost if we talk about the causes? Well, one of the things that gets lost could be my uh, freshman or sophomore students. <laughs> when, we, when we launch into talking about the cause of something, we as 21st century, uh, basically science-educated or science-familiar people, think in terms of causes as in cause and effect relationship from natural things in the natural universe um, that's one problem. The second layer of the problem is that even taken in its most careful sense, say by uh, the medieval thinkers and theologians who used Aristotle a great deal, or the Reformation, 
theologians who used Aristotle a lot. The notion of cause in Latin uh, just doesn't seem to me to hold a candle to Aristotle's actual Greek terminology, which, as you mentioned, is itia. So cause sounds rather bloodless and automatic and, well, maybe uninteresting, whereas itia actually can be used as the notion of responsibility or guilt, and I think you can come up then with cross-examination. So I like the thought that what Aristotle is doing, even though, um, sad to say, we professors of philosophy may handle this a bit dryly, what Aristotle is doing is extremely dynamic and exciting. So it's like um, walking around a kind of thing, you know, and we're trying to talk about what it is, and we want to say what we know, and instead of tossing off a quick fill-in-the-blank answer, we really have to walk around, ask four primary questions, be sure we've got the answers to those, um, kick the tires, try it out, see together if we really know what we're talking about. So, so Aristotle's thesis is going to be that if you know, you're going to, we're going to ask the question, what is it? What is a thing? And, and there, are four way, there are four ways that we have to answer that question to, to truly know a thing. What, now, so could you just walk us through the questions? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, you've mentioned in your notes that are posted online that this is really from Aristotle's Physics, Book 2, Part 3. So uh, between us, we're trying to put some of the text up, but this would be fairly searchable online, too, as long as you're remembering it's Aristotle's book titled Physics, Book 2. It's not too intimidating. It's really Chapter 2, uh, Part 3. And then here are a couple opening sentences from that in translation. Aristotle says this, Now that we have established these distinctions uh, in earlier discussion about knowledge and classification, we must proceed to consider causes. There's our word. So cause comes from the Latin, and itia is the Greek word that we were just elaborating. Uh, consider their causes, their character, and number. Knowledge is the object of our inquiry. That's why there are four questions. We can't just uh, be superficial about this. And men do not think they know a thing till they have grasped the why. So clearly we too must do this as regards both coming to be and passing away of every kind of physical change. In order that, knowing their principles, we may try to refer to these principles in each of our problems. So here come those four causes described by Aristotle, and then I'd be happy to go back and, and do it in a little bit more perfunctory way. Sure. In one sense, then, here's the first. That out of which a thing comes to be and which persists is called cause. For example, the bronze of the statue, the silver of the bowl, and the genera of which the bronze and the silver are species. Um, there's a lot of precision in there, but that's what in Latin gets called the material cause, that out of which a thing comes to be and in which it continues to be, the stuff of it, the matter, material cause. Okay. In another sense, Aristotle goes on, we can refer to the cause as the form or archetype, that is, the statement of the essence and its genera are called causes. His example is of the octave relation of two to one and numbers in general, and the parts in the definition. So we heard first about the material cause. This is the so-called formal cause. Uh, that's the way it's referred to in Latin. So the form or the stamp of essence 
Um, that's what this interrogation seeks. Now, what I, is the what is the thing formally? I've had the suspicion that I've needed to understand Aris, these four causes for a long time, and so I'm hoping to get that out of this. I, and you have a helpful little picture that you have here, which I could describe, uh, and and then we'll fill out the other two causes. But it's a sure. it's of a sculptor who is uh, banging on a uh, a block. And it has kind of in outline form a statue that he's carving out of that block and the picture of the statue coming out of his mind. Uh, so, so it points to the block and it says material cause. And then it points to the image of the statue that he's carving in the mind of the sculptor as the former cause. So the idealized picture of a statue of a warrior uh, that is, uh, that's the formal cause. Would that be something like uh, what Plato would talk about, the, the types? Well, it probably is. So um, just quickly speaking, as you pointed out in a, in a very welcome observation at the start, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle are three very independent and extraordinarily capable people in their own right. They don't walk in lockstep. However, uh, it would be true, I suppose, that the baton gets passed from Socrates to Plato. Plato was a longtime student of Socrates. And then from Plato to Aristotle. Aristotle spent some decades studying with Plato. Um, so the three of them have a related project, but they're each working at it in their distinctive ways. And I think that you could also say in in progressively more sophisticated. So you could could be either more um, opaque and mystifying ways or for the those of us who appreciate the precision to get our, our thinking more fine-tuned in a more precise, uh, a more better engineered way as you move from Socrates to Plato and now into Aristotle. Um, so, right, I like that. I like that picture of the statue and, and that notion there too. But this is a, a, a different way uh, certainly than Plato would have put things. Now, the, I, I cut you off after the first. So the first was material cause, which is that out of which a thing comes, the bronze of a, of a statue and so forth. Right. The second was the former archetype, that, uh, or archetype. That's the statement of the essence. Now, yes. now uh, so I'll let you continue with Aristotle on the third. Right. Well, the third is referred to in Latin as the efficient cause. And here's the way Aristotle takes account of that in Physics Book 2. Again, he says, the primary source of the change or coming to rest, for example, the man who gave advice is a cause, the father is a cause of the child, and generally what makes of what is made and what causes change of what is changed. So the efficient cause um, could be thought of in the case of living things as being the, the parent or in the case of plants, the um, type of, of plant from which a certain type of plant comes. So that's the efficient cause. And then just to finish it up with what may be the most exciting of the four causes, um, this is referred to as the final cause in Latin. This is the way Aristotle describes it in a translation of his Greek. Again, and this is the fourth one, remember. Again, cause is used in the sense of end. Uh, his Greek word there is telos the end or that for the sake of which a thing is done. For example, health is the cause of walking around. Why is he walking around, we say? To be healthy. And having said that, we think we have assigned the cause. The same is true also of all the intermediate steps, 
which are brought about through the action of something else as a means toward the end. For example, reduction of flesh, purgings, drugs, uh, I take it he means diets and things, or surgical instruments are means toward health. All these things are for the sake of the end. That's telus again, for the sake of the telus, though they differ from one another in that some are activities, others are instruments toward that end. Now, this is great. Now, I, if, I, if it's all right, because I'm, again, I, I kind of want to get my head around this, but for some reason it's taken me a little while. I don't, I'm not sure exactly why. But could, do you mind running through a couple of examples before we kind of dig into the, how, how this is helpful uh, and, and maybe running through the four causes of something? The example that you gave me in, in one of our conversations was the, uh, was the example of an acorn. So if you imagine an acorn, um, what would, how would you run through the four causes on that? Sure. So um, part of my contribution here, Brian, is to suggest that Aristotle helps us to think more broadly and deeply about types of things than we have been educated to do today. So uh, let me just lead into the acorn analysis this way. Suppose that uh, you or I were talking with a confirmation class, and um, headed for some illustration from Scripture, from Luther's Catechism, we said, well, you know, we have to talk, folks, about um, whether you really know what an acorn is or the things you have to do to know what God is saying in this passage. Now, if you held up the acorn, or better yet, if we handed out an acorn to everyone in the class, if we could turn them loose so that they could, um, oh, I don't know, get a hold of a bandsaw and do a little bit of uh, sketching and writing down. I think that most of our sons and daughters would think that when they had mentioned the stuff that the acorn was made out of, you know, the cap and the, the seed and, and whatever the guts are, if they had just sawed that open, labeled all of those parts, that they'd feel they had said, had concluded what an acorn is and had expressed their knowledge. Aristotle says, well, no, that's only part of it. So, if we can uh, take the place of one of our students and have that acorn in our hand and say, okay, uh, Professor Aristotle, I'd like to say that I know what an acorn is. What are those questions I have to answer? And he's going to say, well, you know, first of all, why is an acorn an acorn? Um, where does it come from? What gets this going? And we talk there about what they call in Latin the efficient cause. So the starting cause, the from which cause of an acorn is an oak tree. Okay, so I know something about that acorn. If I can identify, acorns are the sort of things that come from oak trees. All right. Um, right. Then, if we look at the acorn itself, we do that bandsaw examination or take it apart or hammer it open. That would be the material cause. That would be the question, what is this kind of thing made up of? Acorny stuff. Yeah, that stuff. <laughs> and then the stuff you would label in your lab book, right? Right, right. Yeah. And then... The next question, which becomes still more interesting, is, well, what is an acorn essentially, right? What is, what is the, you know, kind of the heart, the characteristic of its kind of being? And for that, we'd have to say something like a seed, right? And that I'm not just talking about the way it's shaped and the way it's attractive to small animals and so forth, but that's um, to step outside Aristotle's frame of reference. That's why God made oak trees the way he did to produce acorns the way they do after their kind. And and that's that's what it essentially is. It's a seed. Then the fourth question, um, the big payoff here in a lot of ways, 
is the so-called final cause. So what is this acorn going to be if we don't smash it and destroy it right now? In the normal course of things, what types of beings are acorns in, in terms of what they become? And there, the acorn's final cause would be to become an oak tree. Or possibly, and I'm just playing around a little bit here, possibly it could also be to become uh, the oak desk on which you write your sermons when you become a pastor, right? <laughs> so yeah. um, that those would be the four causes, and they are a, a very rich and programmatic and careful way to be sure that we talk about what type of thing we say we know, but doing something more than just identifying the bits of matter or the arrangement of the bits of matter that it's made of. What, when I look at this thing, uh, this acorn, what, what happens, and especially if I'm trying to think of it like Aristotle's teaching us to think about it, when I take this acorn and instead of planting it so that and watering it so it grows into an oak tree, but instead I take it and I feed it to the pigs or I take it and I put it in my slingshot and I, and I shoot it at the back of someone's head. Uh, in other words, I come along and I interrupt the final cause of this, uh, of this acorn. Uh, what, what what's going on there? How how does Aristotle want us to think about things like that? I'm not sure I'm faithfully reflecting Aristotle all the way through on this, but I would say, well, you know, for one thing, you apparently don't know acorns, <laughs> <laughs> right? Right. So, right. Uh, Johnny, no, an acorn is not to serve as ammunition in your slingshot. Um, so that that really is probably worth saying because. Uh, the most interesting thing is to talk in terms of these four causes about the human being, right? So we've got a bridge into ethics there. Right. But um, it would also be be very important to say at this point that when Aristotle teaches us the four causes, or I'd prefer these four questions for uh, cross-examination, he's actually not talking about particular things but he's talking about particular types of things. So he's not talking about the destiny of any single acorn, but he's talking about the complete natural story of the acorn as an acorn. Ah. Yeah, and this is this is really big. It's also very hard to get, I, th- I think, for us, because we're not hmm, we're not brought up to think that way. Uh, the the advantage, though is that um, this is a strong emphasis of the reality of the way nature, Aristotle would have said the cosmos, is um, as the result of the way God actually created things. So that something bears fruit after its kind is investigatable and something you can look at, but something that we're generally not in a position to appreciate or talk intelligently about today because uh, we go all obsessive over particular little objects and think that you pile up a lot of particular little objects to get these stories. You don't. You look at the normal, healthy, uninterrupted story of the acorn. Acorns come from oak trees. Acorns are made up of this stuff. Acorns are essentially seeds. And if you don't interrupt their life cycle, acorns will become oak trees. Now, I want to talk about how this applies to our anthropology, but maybe one more step on the way there, and to talk about something that maybe is a little bit more complex, uh, but still an inanimate object, uh, maybe less animate than even an oak tree, uh, to something like a home. Uh, And and again, not talking, I, I suppose Aristotle wouldn't want us to talk about that house across the street, but a home in general. 
where something has kind of a, a multiple uh, things that it's made of, a multiple uh, movers, uh, multiple um, kind of ideals, I suppose. Well, maybe not for the form or archetype of a home and different purposes, uh, you know, to, to keep people warm, to be a place where uh, – where families come together to be a, a a home can be a place to exercise hospitality. It can be something that I invest in to um, for for wealth and things like this. So when a thing becomes more complex, the it would have multiple answers to these questions, right? I think we have to say that 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 is the case. But maybe um, the way Aristotle talks a little bit in after. Um, we stopped quoting and talks about looking for the primary cause or the main answer to the questions. Uh, maybe we can put it this way. It may be that very often there are what you could call layers of forms to things, right? Um, by my recollection, which is probably uh, not real solid, I think that Plato tends to talk as if the form is like the imprint of a seal on wax, Right. So um, you could imprint something with numerous seals on top of that one lump of wax, let's say, for Plato. Aristotle, on my read, would like us to push for understanding the central, let's overuse the word, essential essence of the type of thing. Now, where does this become important to push at? Um, here's a, a quick but I think um, interesting biblical interpretation example. Um, I don't think this shows up in the current editions of Ryrie's study Bible, but uh, some years ago in an earlier edition, um, Ryrie, who is a, a reformed author, as you know, um, offered Bible study notes to the entire Bible, including the Gospels. So, for instance, in John 10, one of the big I am chapters for the, from the I am gospel, Jesus said, I am the gate or the door for the sheep. And Ryrie in the past had a footnote that said, um, Jesus is speaking figuratively. Uh, this is not a literal statement that he is the door. And it's just like uh, the statement about the Lord's Supper, where he says, this is my body. It's to be taken figuratively. Right. Well, let's just set aside that Lord's Supper comment on the assumption that, well, really, um, Jesus had a pretty big vocabulary and, and his disciples and the apostles are writing things down by inspiration, so we really should pay attention to the words he used and not change those. But what about that question about the door? Jesus is not literally a door. It's a figure of speech. Um, I suppose that what Ryrie was thinking about, or maybe I should say what people would often think about there, is what is the essence of a door, right? And there are some some things you could say, I suppose. A, a door is a, a big rectangle of wood or of metal, and it has to have a doorknob or a latch, and it has to have two or three or more hinges on it and so forth. But, of course, that has nothing to do with the essence of a door. The essence of a door is that it's the way you get from here to there or the way that you bar a person or sheep from getting from here to there. Mm -hmm. So Jesus literally <laughs> is a door. He is essentially a door. He's more of a door than the things that um, we might be able to reach out and slam right now by our studies is a door. Now, now this gets into this, and maybe this is a side conversation, but I think very, very helpful for our theology is it, it is Aristotle, I think, who's going to make this distinction between the attributes of a thing and the essence of a thing. 
Uh, is that related here to the, these uh, four questions that he's asking? Well, it sure is. Um, <laughs> let me try a, a sneaky professor tactic here that I think you're going to agree with. We, we actually have a, a master metaphor coming up a little bit down the line, um, which looks at Aquinas on the matter of being and essence. And there we'd have the chance to set things up a little more deliberately and I think maybe answer that with a more memorable uh, kind of text from Thomas Aquinas, who was a real master teacher of Aristotle on this exact point. Is it okay oh, to yeah, defer absolutely. that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But at this point, uh, with the door then, you could say that there's a lot of ways to describe a door, but there's something that is essentially dooriness. And so when we're asking the question, even though there might be a number of material things or even apparently formal causes or efficient causes or even multiple final causes, that when the, the more we understand a thing, we're going to understand that there is a, an essential final cause, if you will, an, an, an essential efficient cause of a thing. Uh, and when we get to that, we really start to put our, our finger on the answer to the, to the question, what is this thing and why is this thing? I think that's well put. The, um, the push here is to be sure, uh, I'm sure that Aristotle is concerned, that we be sure that we don't accept kind of a lazy out on this. So whether or not it's possible, we should be pushing for, as you called it before, the essential essence of the kind of thing that we're talking about. Now, it, it bears mentioning again, I think, that Aristotle is not talking about piling up a bunch of acorns and somehow inferring from that pile of acorns what their final cause is. He wants us to take a look at nature and look for what is of the essence uh, to the acorn, for instance. So it's a, it's a different kind of investigation than we usually think of with the scientific method. And indeed, it's far broader with that final cause, for instance, and the efficient cause. And it, it's also more demanding. Um, it's not accidental, I think, that in the modern period, um, people, starting with René Descartes, uh, basically suggested that Aristotle is not the way to go on these issues, and it became uh, far easier to get away with sloppy understandings of kinds of things until, I would say, finally by the mid-19th century, don't know if you'd agree, but we get to the time of Darwin, and people don't even have an understanding of kinds of beings as species anymore. And that, that just makes everything uh, squishier and, and imprecise and bad things can happen. Now that is fascinating. I want to take this to, um, to I think, the direction that you and I both want to go with the conversation is how this applies to our anthropology or our thinking about humanity. Um, you, you mentioned here, I'll just read a little line from some notes that these will be available as well on uh, whatdoesthismean.org. Aristotle's four-question thinking about what kind of thing a particular member of a species follows from this four causes cross-examination, this is foundational for natural law theory and ethics and is something that Martin Luther takes for granted and then surpasses with his theological understanding of the human being's formal and final causes in his 1536 Disputation Concerning Man. So, so let's walk through the four causes and, and the connection to anthropology and natural law and ethics and morality. In how much time? Oh, yeah, two, three minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let's take this as our start at what could well be an ongoing theme. So 
I'm going to offer the briefest of comments. Any of my students listening are laughing at that at the moment. <laughs> my briefest of comments on the natural law connection. And then um, because uh, you and I are two Lutheran thinkers when it comes to Aristotle and so forth, I'd like to uh, say just a little bit more about Luther's use in the disputation concerning man. So first of all, um, when I teach bioethics, I use natural law thinking as a way of raising some questions that need to be raised today in regard to our understanding of who counts as a human being. The, uh, the real gold mine that Aristotle is on this point doesn't actually get nearly as far as Luther can because of, of the rich and normative uh, revealed stuff of scripture. And I know it may feel a little odd for some folks that I'm not running right to particular Bible passages, which I love to use too, but just consider this as a critical question. So I teach in bioethics that you can have basically two basic approaches to answering the question, who counts as a human being or a person and therefore has uh, human rights? The one way you can do it is by a P-property analysis where somebody, usually some powerful somebodies, um, make a list of properties, P-property list, of what they think should be the characteristics of anybody, any individual, who would count as a human being and worthy of human rights. And it would probably include on the list something like um, cognitive capacity, uh, viability, uh, so forth and so on. That's one way of approaching this. There are a lot of worries with that, including who is making the list, but I think the list itself, the whole mindset is problematic for this reason. Uh, in the case of Roe v. Wade, uh, if you take a look at Justice Blackmun's argument for the majority, I'm putting argument in quotes, he as much as says that obviously for answering the question about whether abortion is moral or legal, we need to know the status of the unborn, whatever term he used, embryo or child. And he said, and since a lot of people disagree, and then dot, 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 um, the majority went ahead and legalized abortion anyhow. So here's, here's my question, courtesy of Aristotle. On what basis can you claim that unborn human beings are not human beings? And the reason for asking the question is because presumably the only justification for treating entities differently is because they are of a different kind or a different species than the human being. Uh, loosely, we know that there's such a thing as veterinary ethics that would include um, putting down an animal who's in intractable pain. Uh, you wouldn't do that for human beings or shouldn't because, well, they're human beings. So here's what Aristotle does. He says, I think, quite obviously, that the unborn child comes from human beings, is made up of the stuff that human beings are made of, including, by the way, uh, DNA and then unique individual DNA, that the human beings are essentially zoan logon ekon, the type of being, which is not rock or plant, or but animal being, that is distinctly characterized by the capacity for logos. 
And then Aristotle has some stuff on final cause. And is, too. And is that Logos's, or, or sorry, that's that's Aristotle's uh, language that the. That's his oh, language. That's it's Politics Book One. That's right, Politics One, which our listeners can can get online when they're not driving or jogging. <laughs> so that's right. <laughs> Politics One. It's it's not as daunting as one may think, and it's a very interesting read. But here's the thing, Aristotle. In, in, and as he's, as he's used in natural law thinking, fundamentally points out how silly and thoughtless it is to deny personhood to unborn human beings. It is at least as silly and thoughtless as saying acorns are not really what they are because we don't want to talk about where they came from or what they're going to be if we don't destroy them. And then the, the added help in here is that Aristotle would treat all members of the human race as persons, that is, you know, morally entitled and protected persons, regardless of young age or old age, ability or special disability. Do you know why? Because of species membership. Species membership. So um, Aristotle, though I've heard him used uh, to uh, support abortion in, in some truly... Uh, amazing gymnastics with his text. Uh, Aristotle, uh, it would clear away all of that um, sloppy and um, terrible thinking. What, what would Aristotle say the final cause of uh, human beings are? Yeah, well, right. So here's the part that I don't want to talk about too much. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you why. Because he addresses that uh, most famously at the beginning of his ethics, Nicomachean ethics. And um, my understanding from our Lutheran heritage, from looking at Luther himself, who initially taught Aristotle and translated Aristotle, um, when in the Heidelberg Disputation under the uh, philosophy theses, when Luther says, um, if, if a person wants to read Aristotle without harm to his soul, he must first of all become a fool in Christ. So I am I am very skittish um, doctrinally, and I am also uh, dissatisfied ultimately philosophically with Aristotle's notion of the final cause. So the final cause for the human being, according to Nicomachean ethics in the beginning chapters or books, is the telos is oidaimonia, which is often translated happiness. And we've learned recently that translating it as human flourishing is more helpful. But of course, uh, as Luther says, uh, the problem with Aristotle is he doesn't, very much unlike Plato, Aristotle doesn't contemplate um, the, the reality or the likelihood even of the person surviving biological death. So he's not, uh, he's not even in the same ballpark as thinking the way Scripture does about the continuing existence of the human being. And I think, for that reason, we've got to look to Christian authors, such as uh, Augustine, for a decent treatment of the final cause of human yeah, beings. Yeah, or... What would, yeah, what would Augustine ahead. say? And, and Luther and, and who else? I'm interested in that in that question. Yeah, so, so Augustine is next week, my oh, friend. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, we may have a chance to, to talk about it there, but <laughs> uh, just for instance, in... His City of God, um, Augustine says, I'll spare you most, but not all of the Latin. Augustine says that there is no reason to 
practice or to think philosophically, which is to say to think deeply about things, um, unless it is with a view toward beatus happiness. So it's beatific happiness. And, and that means that the final cause of the human being, so to speak, for a Christian thinker like Augustine would be unending happiness in the presence of the Lord in heaven. And um, then I would just paraphrase, plus whatever of that um, beatific happiness uh, can be had and practiced and should be practiced in this life as Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so that would be kind of a rude and crude way of referring to Augustine, who would prefer to talk about Plato rather than Aristotle, truth huh, be told. This is something. Now, what about, uh, so you talk about how Luther surpasses this, um, and you mentioned it's because of his access to divine revelation. I, is it because uh, Luther can can say not only um, is uh, man um, created by God, which I'm not, I don't know if, if Aristotle can say that man is created, but that uh, Luther can also say that um, that that God Himself has taken upon the form of a man, and that that is has um, has anthropological results. Is that is that what Luther's going to be thinking, or or um, or even more than that? Well, it's you know it's more than I can get my arms around, but I I think I understand. <laughs> the essence of what Luther's up to and the trajectory that he'd like to steer us. So um, if we grab what I think has been one of the single most helpful, philosophically helpful statements for me in our Lutheran confessions in the uh, Apology to Augsburg, that fourth article on justification, um, we, we confess God does not want to be dealt with. He cannot be treated nisi per verbum, except through the word, and I would take it that word there is in the first place, Jesus himself, the logos verbum or word of God, John 1. And then secondly, that it would be a reference to uh, the entire text of revealed scripture from Genesis to Revelation, because as Jesus um, told us, that's all about him. So I think that what Luther is doing is even though he starts with Aristotle in that disputation concerning the human being, um, he's actually thinking backwards from Jesus. So um, that's that's something that no doubt Luther was tutored in by Psalms like Psalm 8, don't you think? You know, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, yet crowned him with glory and honor, which is cited in Hebrews 2, and we're told that the son of man is not in the first place human beings, but in the first place it's Jesus, the son of man, and that's what accounts for the worth and the value of um, the species of human beings. God's become a member of our species by the incarnation. But at any rate, in, in the disputation concerning man, I happen to have it open in front of me. So um, I can just read off a couple of the opening propositions, and then I'll give you the, um, the crescendo proposition in the disputation, and then just turn that back over to you. So here are, are the first few um, Intended for, what, philosophical and theological debate, right? So first he's setting up his stipulations. Philosophy or human wisdom, Luther writes, defines man as an animal having reason, sensation, and body. So I would say Luther's plainly starting with Aristotle's definition 
of the human being, remember not individuals, but the species, as zoon logon ekon. Then, Luther says in his point two, it's not necessary at this time to debate whether man is properly or improperly called an animal. <laughs> this is tiresome, he says, right? But we all know he's not a rock or a plant, right? But this must be known, that this definition describes man only as a mortal and in relation to this uh. life. And I don't think Aristotle would disagree with that. That's all Aristotle set out to do, alas. But um, Aristotle, as far as we know, didn't have biblical revelation. And, of course, that's why this is um, a good witness to call for people who are afraid we're, we're only quoting odd Bible passages to make points. Um, this is a simply an obvious thing as a thoughtful person takes a look at the cosmos or creation. But this must be known. Luther's third prop, that this definition describes man only as a mortal in relation to this life, and for it's certainly true that reason is the most important and the highest in rank among all things. He acknowledges in point five about man being uh, the mentor of arts and medicine. And then here's his point six. By virtue of this fact, it ought to be named the essential difference by which man is distinguished from the animals and other things. So he's using the essential cause or formal cause, and he's simply taking Aristotle for granted. But Aristotle doesn't have a big enough view. He lives in an impoverished world, as, as bright and gifted a human being as he surely was. So um, the crescendo thought from Luther's disputation concerning the human being would be, I think, Prop 32. It's pretty short. And it's part of a long German sentence, but here it is. Paul, in Romans 3, we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works, briefly sums up the definition of man saying, man is justified by faith. And working from, I really want to be sure the footnotes here, working from Oswald Bayer, um, and I'm just kind of borrowing from him and doing my own slight version, um, we could say, that it's not adequate to describe the human being as zoan lagon ekon, though it's fine as far as it goes. It's also not sufficient in more modern terms to talk about the human being as homo sapiens. Huh. Uh, sorry, homo, homo, yeah, you know, homo sapiens. So that means having the same wisdom or the same knowledge, right? Right, right, right. which is, is better than sentience. But it really is the best if I can paraphrase Luther and stand on Oswald's shoulders, it's the best to talk about as homo, us as homo justificans. <laughs> That's fantastic. Isn't that, is that something? I'm looking at the thesis here too. I'm, uh, I'm just looking at example for, at, at a certain, this is again, Luther disputation concerning man. Philosophy does not know the efficient cause for certain or likewise the final cause. So he's saying, look, because in the next one, because it posits no other final cause than peace of this life, which you talked about, the good life, and does not know the efficient cause is God the creator. So because it's unable to see God as the creator, therefore unable to see the final cause as anything beyond this life. And also, I think he mentions in here the inability to see man as sinner or Christ as uh, uh, God and man to save us. It misses the, it can't, Aristotle can't get to, he can't answer his own questions. We can only answer those questions in Christ and to say that the essence of man is to be forgiven by Jesus, <laughs> to be that's How about just that? phenomenal. Oh, you know, and also, I mean, think about the 
the clarity of our preaching and justification um, to know as we step in the pulpit, for instance, that it is part of the human condition that we want to be justified. If we don't have God's justification in Christ by grace and faith in Scripture alone, that means of grace stuff, if we don't have that, we are, of course, going to be trying to self-justify. Yeah, that's right. That's right. right? Um, now, speaking about those causes, I want to get one more quote in here, sure. if I may, especially in response to the way you were just talking. So I would like to say that um, his ethics is another matter, but in this area of his anthropology, and I think also in his logic, um, Aristotle is somebody that we ought to have um, in hand. And I think that there's an echo of Aristotle in the opening of Colossians. Uh, let me give us a familiar verse here. This is Colossians chapter 1. I'm picking up St. Paul at verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then Paul is back to talking about the church. So um, I I would just point out that actually St. Paul is using two of Aristotle's four causes in there. It should not be a point of doctrine, uh, but I, I think it's pretty obvious when you put together the way Paul writes elsewhere and the way he talked to the philosophers in Athens, as we read in Acts 17, Paul knew his Greek philosophy. And so what he's doing is not dismissing Aristotle, but filling the old wines of Aristotle's thinking with the, the new wine of the gospel, right? So uh, Jesus, get this, Jesus is the efficient cause of everything that exists. And Jesus is the final cause of everything that exists. If there were such a thing as notes that Paul had been taking down before the Holy Ghost saw to it that he wrote these exact words, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if, if there was a little list there, and of course Paul could have done it in whichever language you want, a little list of those four causes and a big circle around um, where does it come from and what is its ultimate purpose. And, and then, of, of course, um, I don't want to be disparaging of Aristotle because, in a in a sense, his role, alas, was not to spend time reflecting with the scriptures, but just to think as well as he could um, on his own or among the Greeks. Um, Aristotle is at least working with the right trajectory. He's asking some of the right questions. He is just impotent to get us where I'd like to think he knows we all need to get to. He's asking the questions, but it is for the prophets and the apostles to answer him. It reminds me also of how Dox, Paul's doxology in Romans, where he says, from him and through him and to him are all things. Or even that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the source and yep. the end of yep. all things. Uh, and it's amazing to see. I, th I think I have a suspicion, and i got to try to track it down this week, that Luther is is working with these four questions from Aristotle when he writes the Catechism. And he asks, "What is baptism, and what benefit does it give, and what is its uh, what is its significance?" Uh, when he talks about the Lord's Supper, when when Luther goes to investigate these things, and we know that he's doing it here, and that some of the other Lutheran theologians are using Aristotle's questions as a as a way to get 
to the truth of our scriptural doctrine. All right, that's it. Aristotle's cross-examination of nature, what's commonly called the four causes. I think I got a better grasp on it now. I really appreciate that, Dr. Schultz. Next week, um, next week we turn to, to two, uh, start to turn to the Christian philosophers. Uh, we have Augustine next week and, the, um, and his story of stealing pears when he was a kid, a high school kid. And his reflection on what that means about human nature. So we'll we'll pick up our conversation and our anthropological uh, concerns with that next week. Thank you again for your time.